Greetings, travelers! Welcome back to Tales from the Enchanted Forest with your animal companions, Fox and Sparrow. Sao buona! Welcome, guys. We're so excited. It's a new year and a new tale, and I'm just so happy to be back. Yes, I mean, we did try the solo episodes for January, and now we are back with the duo. Mm -hmm. So it's nice to have a mix it up now and then. But I do enjoy doing episodes with someone else, so it's not just me talking uh, at myself. Yeah. And repeating the same line 10 times <laughs> to myself on a mic. There was something fun about just picking a super short story and just analyzing it on our own. But I much prefer just, you know, hanging out and talking with you, Fox. Yes, I definitely enjoy having some feedback as well when I'm doing a story. So someone else to chime in. So otherwise, it was just me kind of being like, have I talked about this story too much? Should I interject in my own storytelling? But... <laughs> It's always nice to have a new year, and we have lots of fun things planned for this year, so be sure to check us out on our website, which is newly designed, and our Twitter for everything that we are up to. Mm -hmm. And props to Fox for just redesigning the website recently. She's done a fantastic job, and she spearheads a lot of the, the blog posts that are up there, so credit to you, girl. Thank you. I mean, if anyone wants to see more, because I'm also someone that really likes to read up on things. So if anything we talk about ever makes you wonder, I wonder where that comes from or I want more information, everything is on our website. We are up to date on all of our episodes at this point. So if there is a previous episode that you want to see a blog post on, please do check it out. But otherwise... We are really excited to get going because we have waded through many, many cow pastures to bring you this fantastic story from South Africa today. So this story comes from the Native Fairy Tales of South Africa by Ethel L. McPherson of Cape Town. She credits her stories to two different sources, one of which is Nursery Tales of Bishop Calloway, published in 1868. And the second source is The Treasury of Basuto Folklore by M. Jacote. McPherson retells these stories, which were originally translated from Zulu and Sisutu, so we hope that you enjoy our variation of it. A long time ago, there lived a great king who had conquered lands stretching farther than where the sun rose to where it set. One day, his daughter was born when the king was fighting his greatest foe. And since she was born during the hour of his victory, where he and his men mowed down their enemies with their spears, he named her the Daughter of the Sword. Quirky name, of course. I personally like Kaylee, spelled K-A-H-L-E-I-G-H, -E <laughs> and then like 10 silent Ks. But you know. <laughs> I mean, that is one way of naming your kid. But also, if you won the battle with spears, why is she not the daughter of the spear is my only, my only question here. But maybe their enemies had swords. And so he's like, well, we've taken their swords and here's my daughter of the swords. Ooh, maybe the mother is like from that group. It was kind of also taken. I don't know. We're, ad we're adding in our own backstory. We're like, so why did they give her this name? It wasn't in, you know, top 10 baby names of whatever year this was, of course. It's also long. You can have Kaylee, like you were talking about or something, but you could also just be Daughter of the Sword. Is the first name Daughter, middle name of the, and last name Sword at that point? <laughs> it's like Meg from Family Guy, where her full name is Megatron. <laughs> oh my gosh. So no offense to anyone named Kaylee spelled like that. 
Um, it's just, you know, a running joke at this point that people are adding in different unique spellings of names, which is always interesting because I feel like they always end up super strange. And I've had a couple because we used to, well, we used to work at a place where we had to take people's names down. Yeah. And people would have just, like you would, they would tell you their name and then you would spell it and they would get mad at you for not spelling it a completely different way as if you were supposed to know that when they said Ladasha, they meant L-E and then like a dash and then an A. And you're like, oh, I didn't know that. I feel for people who have unique spelling names where they have to always explain it but at the same time it it's just i can't predict that you're gonna need a silent q in the middle of the name as well so <laughs> either way her name is daughter of the sword so that's her name she can wait till she's 18 to try and legally change it but you know her dad's the king that might be an issue <laughs> just imagine all the fam sorry i'm on a tangent now because imagine the problems this name will cause when you have your own kids do they become the great granddaughter of the sword the granddaughter of the sword mom what's your name my name is daughter of the sword i mean it does have a nice ring to it if we're assuming of the sword is the last name then i think she's pretty golden to do a lot of things you could say if your son is Leo, being Leo of the sword, like that instantly is way cooler than just a Leo. Ah, you know what I just thought about? Like because this story wasn't originally written in English, this is just a direct translation of Daughter of the Sword. So her name might be something, you know, something that doesn't sound like Daughter <laughs> of the Sword, just means that. Oh my gosh, you're right. <laughs> this is the problem with, because when I, the, when reading things in English and you take it so literally, then you're like, wait, this was translated from something else. So this doesn't make sense. And to be honest, I act the same way whenever I read something translated from my, you know, native tongue. I'm like, this doesn't make any sense. No one would actually say this. And I realize it's just like a word for word translation. I'm like, oh, that's the confusion. That makes me feel better that she might have had a more succinct name. And this is just the meaning of it. Still awesome. We'll just assume that it's Kaylee in the meantime. No, but we'll, call, we'll continue to call her Daughter of the Sword. That's <laughs> Yeah, I like Daughter of the Sword. Imagine, no, her name is Daughter of the Sword. She quickly became the king's favorite child, for the others could not compare to her beauty or proud spirit. To make sure everyone knew she was his absolute fave, he declared that her coming-of-age ceremony would be celebrated by gathering cattle from every direction into her presence, then slaughtering them there. And when the king said many, like, he meant a lot. There would be so many cattle that when they trampled the earth, enough dust would get kicked up to block out the sun. Just casually starting an ice age. That's fine. <laughs> right? <laughs> that's how much he loved his daughter. He wanted Yeah, he's like, uh, they need more ice age movies. Let's have another. Another. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> The proud daughter was very much looking forward to the promise that her father so boldly made for her. And so when she grew up and became of age, the princess brought her handmaids to where she would stay for the ceremony before sending one to inform her father that he should now send the cattle as he had previously promised. So there are many coming-of-age ceremonies in South Africa, and one of them is, again, please forgive my pronunciation, um, Um M Ol which is from the Zulu. Now, the author of the book we took the story from directly credits these as being from the Zulu language and the Sesotho language. So we will focus on those two for our references to South African customs, since each group does have their own traditions. 
Um, so with this coming-of-age ceremony, it usually involves a girl spending seven days in a separate house with other female relatives and friends where they practice songs that they're going to sing during the celebration. A cow is usually slaughtered and the daughter is presented with the spear as well as other gifts to celebrate her becoming a woman. So I think the tradition that's mentioned here about him giving her cows is supposed to be kind of an escalation of the traditional <laughs> ceremony where instead of one cow she's getting an entire horde of them so <laughs> that's just some background on why this is being done well that's good context to have uh to understand like the ceremony that's happening here this is not just like out of nowhere he's like you know what i love you so much here's just a bunch of cows and there was it's good to know this is the cool tradition. Yeah, and it also explains kind of why she's in a different place than him um, and why this is so important that he gets this right. It's because this is, you know, a ritual to celebrate her becoming of an age, you know, to get married, her becoming an adult. She's supposed to be kind of the center of attention here, and this is supposed to be a gift for her. So mm -hmm. for him to kind of go back on his word on what he's going to gift her kind of takes away from the value of the event for her, obviously, because this is supposed to be kind of how he's welcoming her into the adult world, and then soon she'll probably get married and go off. So it's really important that he gets this right. So come on, Dad. You can do it. And so... The doting dad king sent 20 oxen to the princess, but she looked upon them with such disdain before saying, I see nothing. Now, at this point, I'm starting to get the sense that she might be kind of a spoiled princess, as it were, and I don't really care for that as a personality trait, um, but I actually can't blame her for this one instance. Uh, 20 oxen is very clearly falling short of that initial promise that he gave that would like start an ice age essentially it's like 20 really she can count that many that's not enough yeah i mean i guess that he was it was he was exaggerating for the sake of it but you can't exaggerate like that with you know a golden child or a spoiled child because then they'll just say something like but last year i had 26 or 36 whatever dudley said <laughs> Like, you know, it becomes very Dudley-esque in terms of what you're promising and what you're delivering. Exactly. So the king's men returned to the king, informing him of his bratty daughter's displeasure. So he sent them back again, but this time with 40 cattle. But once again, the princess turned her nose up and said, I see nothing. The king, who is all too happy to please his proud daughter, then sends 100 cattle to her. But still, she stuck up her nose in the air and said, I can still see the sun. And until it is darkened, according to the saying of my father, I will never return to my home. And this is where I rewrote it. So you can let me know if it makes more sense now. The king was still eager to make his daughter happy. So he had his warriors gather hundreds of cattle for her. And the princess was shockingly still not happy. Having taken all the cattle from within his domain, he then sent an army of warriors to go beyond his kingdom to gather even more to pay tribute to his daughter. The warriors traveled for many days before finally coming upon a great green valley where thousands of fine cattle were peacefully grazing. With great excitement, the warriors began rounding up the cattle by frightening them with their shouts and prodding them with their spears until they heard a voice coming from up high, asking, who did these cattles belong to? 
Slowly, the warriors looked up to see the huge, monstrous form of the Lord of the Cattle. The beast was so big that whole forests and countries fit upon its back. Not only that, but while some sections on the back were in early harvest, other parts were in midwinter. This is honestly such a cool design for a monstrous antagonist. We saw this Turtle Island trope before in our Skywoman episode, but the unique imagery of the variety of seasons across the back of this beast is such a cool visual. Yes, I mean, it definitely reminds me of, you know, lion turtles and of course the Turtle Island, but it's just nice to have this image of living things and an entire kind of environment on top of a moving creature. And I wish we saw more of that, to be honest, in fantasy worlds, because it's just an interesting idea of a sentient creature also being a world to other people. And he's just casually there, you know, like they didn't notice him (laughs) till he asked the question, like, excuse me, who do these belong to? It's kind of like a rhetorical question, but he still asks it. And for some crazy reason, the huge Lord of the Cattle creature doesn't frighten the warriors. In fact, they laugh at his question and just continue driving the cattle out of the valley. They drove them across the plains to where the Daughter of the Swords was waiting. Their approach sounded like thunder, and the dust from their hooves rose up and darkened the sun's bright light. The princess was very pleased with this display and that her father kept his word. Cow after cow was slaughtered in her honor, and all the warriors ate their fill. However, in the warriors' excitement, they may have forgotten the scary lord of the cattle to the king, or mentioned the fact that he challenged them about the cattle as they skedaddled on out of there. (laughs) But I'm sure that won't come back to bite them at all. No, why would it? Once the feasting and celebrating were over, the daughter of the sword stayed with her mother and her little sister. Soon, harvest time came, and so all the people of the village, including her mother, left to tend to the fields, leaving the princess and the little sister alone. While they were resting during the midday heat, they felt the ground begin to rumble. But they were not afraid, for they had the blood of princes. Between the the warriors not being afraid of the huge monstrous lord of the cattle, and now these girls just, just being chilling, like, yeah, the earth is shaking, what of it? It's kind of like... Is anyone afraid? Am I the only no. one who would be freaking out right now? It does seem like one of those, those tropes you see in animes where the giant monster comes out and no one acknowledges it because it's like, oh, it's just you. It's like you're an inconvenience, not so much as a scary monster. So the Lord of the Cattle isn't really all that threatening. Which, you know what, to be honest, I would also be quite annoyed. To me, it begs the question of what else is out there that's making them just feel like, yeah, this is nothing. We're, we're not going to worry about it. It's like, hmm, okay. Heather, is there anything else there, out there I should be worried about? <laughs> I'd just be a nervous honestly. wreck, honestly. <laughs> I can kind of see why they have a princess called the Daughter of the Sword and why they're just able to walk into other kingdoms and other groups and just take their cows. They don't seem to be bothered by much. It's like if the in Beowulf, they had gone into King Hrothgar's lodge and just said, oh, that that's what you're afraid of and they just started laughing at grendel or ignoring him (laughs) it does kind of play into the power dynamics because imagine like the scary monster comes up to you about to kill you and you're just kind of like oh that's it like i thought you'd be scarier or bigger 
it is one of my favorite anime tropes, I will say. It is, but it just, it can't be overdone or else eventually when they are afraid of something, it's like, really? This is what you're afraid of? <laughs> yeah, I mean, they do it quite well in Owl House, um, the Disney show that got canceled way too early. But... <laughs> the season episode another episode's coming out for season three so i'm really excited but they do that a bit where they have this big scary creature think that it's about to come and cause chaos but instead everyone just kind of ignores it or they do the opposite where they have a creature that is kind of small and not intimidating actually be the scariest thing alive so it's a good dynamic to play with the little sister went to see what was happening i mean she might not have been afraid but she guess she was curious and she found the monstrous lord of the cattle standing upon their now broken fence. And at this point, fear does seem to finally take her, for she cries out what she's seeing to her older sister. But while she was speaking, two leaves from the tree on the monster's back fluttered into the hut and commanded the young girl to draw water from the spring. Even though she was confused by this, she obediently took a bucket and went to the spring. Once she was ready to return to the hut, she found that her feet were rooted to the ground and she could not move. While this was happening, leaves fluttered to the daughter of the sword and gave her a similar command, but to fetch the jar and water from another hut. But she succeeded in her saving throw as she refused the order. However, she was unable to refuse the second time and angrily fetched the water. When she returned, the leaves commanded her to make a fire, grind corn, and bake bread. In typical spoiled princess fashion, she argued against this as it was beneath her station. And besides, her nails were far too long to do the work. <laughs> she literally says this, and I love her so much for it. <laughs> I just got my nails done. I can't. She shows it to him. He's like, look at my nails. I can't possibly. It's like, oh, no, I can't do that. That's for no. uh, people with short nails. I mean, also to be fair, is does, this is like quite a big class differentiation, I think, because people who have shorter nails or grubby nails or calluses, hands were quite popular in terms of like being able to see what kind of class status someone had all over the world. This wasn't just in South Africa. This was, you know, all over the world. People would try and keep their hands nice and dainty. And even nowadays, you see people taking really good care of their hands in terms of nail art and, you know, making sure their cuticles are nice and they take care of the hair on their arms and their hands. And it's just a really big indication of, well, at the time, of I don't have to work. My hands are nice and smooth. I have long nails you know, underneath my nails are really clean. And that's just a show of, I don't work in the fields. Um, and it's, you know, just a cosmetic way of telling what kind of class someone's in. Similar to things like paleness of skin in places like Asia and India, people who were paler were more valued. Um, and it's just places like, I remember there was a story in um, a folklore that we talked about from China when you work in the fields, it was to make your skin look tan so that the stepsister would be uglier than the other sister. Mm. So it's just a constant reminder in stories that they're coming from a traditional culture. So here, it's a very big like, I don't need to work. I don't know. Like I don't, I've never needed to do this before. And here I am trimming my nails to be as short as like 
possible so I just don't have to be bothered to trim them anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's no longer really a class thing anymore. But back yeah. then, things like that were quite important, like hair length. That's fair. Um, the way you dress is obviously the most important marker, but also little things that make up those differences. Either way, the princess would regret using this as her argument as after she had spoken it, leaves came down and made quick work with a knife to trim those nails down for her. They probably didn't do it nicely. This is not like the spa. They were probably just very efficient about it, I imagine. The leaves then showed her how to grind the corn. With burning anger in her heart, she reluctantly did all that was asked of her. Once all the food had been prepared, she carried it out and the monster quickly ate it all. <laughs> then more leaves flew into the hut and retrieved everything in it, sleeping mats, water skins, and just everything else. All was devoured by the monster. After that, the leaves scattered throughout the village and consumed everything else the village had to offer. Then, the monster commanded the princess to climb onto his back, which she obediently did. At this time, the younger princess felt her sister leaving and became able to move once more. She ran to her mother in the field and told her what was happening. Together, they ran back to the village but they could not find her. The men of the village heard the cries of the mother, so with weapons in hand, they tracked the monster until they found him waiting for them. Dun, dun, dun! <laughs> now, you just got to imagine, there's just, like, these are not warriors. These are just village dudes who have just picked up, like, the nearest spear or whatever. Probably still capable, but, like, we're talking, like, level one or two warrior here like very grunt and they're going up against this huge monstrous like creature it's definitely the beginning of the video game and this is the final boss at the end of it and you're just like crap what do i do <laughs> that's kind of the image we're set up with here it's like the local militia joining the war where you're like you're now <laughs> recruited to help us fight this local monster and they're like but we don't really want to that's it like you have Depends. to there's no other option do they have protagonist hair? Because that would be the big changer in us. <laughs> well, I mean, the protagonist is currently on the monster's back, so. True, true. So they're probably in trouble. I mean, the first time we read this, I really thought it was going to be more of like a Beauty and the Beast situation where like he takes her away to his magical kingdom and they live together. But this ending is so much more satisfying, so I'll let you continue. <laughs> The Lord of the Cattle sees what this situation is as well, like very accurately, and just laughs at the men, telling them just to kind of get it over with already, like for them to try their best, knowing this would be ineffective. But even so, the men do try in vain. They throw their spears, but they just break on impact against the hard shell of the, the monster. However, the monster is still moved by the, the cries and tears of the mother. And he allows the princess to say one last goodbye to her. But once that's done, he mocks those who tries to follow him before he quickly charges off into the bush where he could not be followed. The Lord of the Cattle journeyed far before reaching a cave where he told the princess to depart. In the cave, she found a pillow, a sleeping mat, some bread, and a jar of water. Here he left her, saying, I am avenged. For I have spoiled your father. He would have received many heads of cattle when your bridegroom claimed you. But now 
he will never see you again. He robbed me of my cattle, and now in my turn, I have spoiled him. So many, so to give context to this, because um, it seems quite, it's a fine rejection. I love rejections, but this one needs a little bit more context. So many countries have something called a bride price, where the groom's family gives items like cattle, other livestock, money, or usually other tangible shows of wealth to the bride's family. These customs were done usually to show the bond and acceptance of the connection between the two families instead of what we do now, which is mostly just a connection between individuals. So think of it as instead of giving your fiancé an engagement ring to show that you want to marry them, you give her family an item to show that you are joining their family. So it was also used as a demonstration of the groom's family's ability to take care of their new bride. In some South African cultures, specifically the Zulu that we've been talking about throughout the story, the elements of the bride price or lobola tradition are essential and marriage will not be recognized until the proper customs are done. In the daughter of the sword's case, she would have expected a large bride price from her suitor as, you know, a princess and the favored child of the king. And so her father loses both his favorite daughter, but also any future cattle he could have gotten from her, which would have also probably been quite a lot considering that she demands quite a lot. So for her coming of age ceremony, if she's expecting enough cattle to block out the sun, you could only imagine what her and her father would demand of any suitor. So just to give some context, he's not only, you know, not going to marry her or make her her, his, his bride as most animal bridegrooms do, he is just going to uh, leave her there and be like, there you go. Enjoy. And I think it's also smart that he doesn't kill her because yeah. often like once you kill them, they instantly become a martyr and there just becomes a more fury and rage to get a vengeance again, um, get revenge, get even, even though the king must be devastated. I'm sure there's going to be some retaliation. There's something about knowing that she's still alive prevents it from escalating more than quote-unquote necessary. I don't know mm -hmm. how to word that. Honestly, I think the Lord of the Cattle is my favorite character in a folk story or any kind of story we've told in a long time, just because he's not really hurting anyone. He didn't really do anything wrong, and then his cows were just taken from him. So in retaliation, he took everything from the people who not only took his cows, because I'm sure had his cows still been alive, he would have just taken the cows back, but they killed his cows. And I'm not, I'm sorry, you take enough cows that can block out the sun and you kill them all, you cannot eat that much meat quickly enough. No. Unless they were having like giant steaks for like every meal of the day and then also having it as a snack, just there's no way. So they took his cows, they killed his cows, they probably wasted his cows. And so in retaliation, he doesn't even kill her or, you know, bring famish and stuff to the people. He just takes their things, which again can be replaced. Um, and then he also just takes the princess and puts her somewhere else and just kind of like, all right, enjoy. Yeah. He doesn't even really make her life hard. He gives her a pillow, a sleeping mat, some bread, and a jar of water, which is more than most kidnappies get. They usually get like put in some random position and are told, there you go, this is your life now, and then abandoned. So in the original text, it does explicitly say that the, they slaughtered the cows, the warriors ate their fill, and there was plenty left over for the vultures and the scavengers to take what, what was left over. Um... <laughs> So yeah, there was lots left over. 
left over all right <laughs> so they were literally like here we go extra for the birds yeah i think the one thing that is super interesting about this mid story is it kind of turns into a slight horror moment in the middle where you realize that he's just commanding them like and it's not even like scary intimidation it's just like these leaves are falling they're like do this thing and the daughter of the swords resists once but then she has to cave and gives into what's happening so you're i remember reading the first time going what is he gonna ask them to do like it ended up just <laughs> making food but it's like you can now see like what extent of power he has um just to command them in such a way such defiant mm -hmm. people and also in those moments he's teaching her how to make bread what he's really doing is teaching her how to survive on her own because she's about to have to do that <laughs> yeah i didn't even think about that but yeah He's a good guy. We like this guy. Did nothing wrong. Got harassed. Was annoyed. Yeah. I read this and I was like, I do not like the protagonist, but man, this antagonist, like, you've got to see this story for him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So in, in, in many ways, I see it as him preparing her for what was to come. And, and, and yes, so the Daughter of the Sword would remain in there, in that cave, for the rest of her days. But people would still say that she still had many adventures. I don't really know how that works if she's confined to that place. But it does end with saying she does have strange adventures, but she is she never really goes back. But I guess a personality like that eventually kind of forces it. She's stubborn enough. She probably found a way to make something interesting happen in her life. I like it. I like that, you know, she's going to have to learn to rough it out. She's starting her journey and there's a way for her to succeed in life and learn how to do things and become her own person. And I'm sure she'll prevail because she seems like a very strong, stubborn character. And stubborn characters often survive out of pure spite. <laughs> I like to think that very far down the line that she and the, the Lord, the cattle, eventually just kind of become friends. Maybe out of just loneliness and necessity, but I kind of like this idea that they, she grumbling is like, yeah, okay, you're kind of cool. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, yeah, I, I get it. I understand. So yeah, that is the Daughter of the Sword. Um, I did not know what I was signing up for when I first read it, but it mm -hmm. took a lot of interesting turns. I really enjoyed looking it over a couple more times, like finding those little things again. Um, and it just felt very different from some of the other stories we've covered. Yes, I remember when you first said we're doing it and I looked it up. Well, first of all, Internet Archive was having a system maintenance. So I was like, well, there goes that. Oh, no. So I gave up for the day, played some Animal Crossing, and then came back to it. Um, but Good choice. it does, it's a bit different, but I'm really glad that it's not a romantic story in a way because so many stories end up with someone getting rescued or deciding that love was the way to go. And sometimes I'm just like, let's not have a love one. Let's have one about family. Let's have one where the protagonist is technically the bad guy. It's just so different and so exciting that I think it's interesting to do. I did try and look up maybe some subsequent stories or some sequels or other, because maybe Dawn of the Sword is just kind of like um, a stock character, kind of like Jack and Vasilisa, mm. but she wasn't to my dismay because I was hoping to find something about her adventures. But if any of our viewers know any more Daughter of the Sword type stories or any kind of folklore fairy tales that kind of follow someone like this, that'd be really interesting to see because it's always nice to have characters that are the bad guys, to be honest. Right? And it doesn't become super clear until the very end that she is no. Like, 
I kept waiting for the redeeming part of her and mm-hmm. being like, yeah, she's going to get better and then she's going to be the protagonist we're all waiting for. But it's just like, it just ends with, nope, she still kind of sucks. <laughs> <laughs> you know? It's like, she still sucks. It's fine. This is the story. Yeah, I just, I kind of liked how it ended so abruptly again. And she, she was stuck there. She went on adventures, but she's stuck there. And that's it. It's like, that's it. That's, that's the story. I believe, believe, believe that's all, folks. Just like the Lord of the Cattle, we want to take you to a new place and journey far away with our five fantastic finds. Number one. The Cattle Lord is clearly a big character in the story, but why do we gloss over the fact that he has an entire ecosystem growing on his back? We've covered the Turtle Island story before in our episode on the Native American myth, the Sky Woman. But turtles don't just go all the way down, they go all the way around. Anthropologist Edward Burnett Taylor looks at the Turtle Island story like the Vedic story of Kerma, a great turtle who happens to be the second form of the god Vishnu. In addition to that, the Chinese turtle Ao's legs were chopped off and used to help prop up the heavens. There are also world serpents and world elephants, so next time someone tells you the world is flat, be sure to counter that, of course, that's why there's turtles all the way down. Number two. The story describes the lord of the cattle as a massive monster with a thick, protective skin that spears cannot pierce. Despite this overwhelming physical intimidation, what actually makes him so terrifying is his unnerving ability to control his enemies against their will. Since the victims of this ability retain their minds but are simply unable to refuse his commands, this falls under the category of the people puppets trope. Unlike the mind control trope, victims retain their thoughts and memories as their bodies helplessly obey another's will. The more scary aspects of this trope is briefly explored in the series Avatar The Last Airbender through the bloodbending ability. Katara learns of this ability from a fellow waterbender, Hama, who invents this technique while being imprisoned by the Fire Nation. While she only briefly uses this ability once in the series to restrain Hama herself, the knowledge that Katara could use this ability adds tension and conflict to her character. This ability is further explored years later in the first season of Legend of Korra. On the other hand, sometimes this trope isn't to ask the big questions about what it means for others to have such a strong influence on other people. Especially in anime, this trope is often used to provide a convenient excuse as to why two heroes should fight one another. Because really, the audience knows the heroes don't need to fight, but they also kind of want to see it go down anyways. This trope provides ample drama, emotional betrayal, and can easily lead to a I-know-you're-in-there power-of-friendship moment. Number three. The Daughter of the Sword expects cows for her coming-of-age ceremony, and as mentioned in the episode, the ceremony of the Zulu is very similar to others around the world. During these traditional coming-of-age ceremonies, girls often isolate themselves with other women in their community and learn about their responsibilities, sex, childbirth, and so much more. The ceremonies usually end in dancing and singing, with lots of family members coming to join the celebration and bringing gifts for the girls. In Mali, Fulani women get facial tattoos. In China, Han women partake in the Jili ceremony or the hairpin ceremony. And some First Nation tribes, such as the South Dakota Suix Oyate Reservation, the girls have a four-day ceremony. 
All around the world, we celebrate girls becoming women. Maybe not with enough cows to block out the sun, but with gifts, love, song, and dance. Number four. Cows played a significant role in today's story. And in a minute, Fox will talk about the cultural significance of cattle. But I want to take a minute to talk about some other cool general cow facts. For instance, did you know that cows are colorblind to red? Despite the popular notion that red makes bulls angry, studies have shown that they cannot see the color at all. The reasons bulls charge at matadors more has to do with the movement and how they manipulate the cape. And the color red is only used as a way to conceal the blood splatter from the bull. But colorblindness aside, cows do have good vision and can see 300 degrees around them. So you would need to be directly behind them if you wanted to surprise them. Another fun thing I learned about cows is how much scientists have discovered from their DNA. According to a study from UCL in 2012, cow DNA suggests that modern domesticated cows trace back all the way to a small herd of about 80 cattle from 10,500 years ago. Woo! That's a lot of cattle today that come from a very small collective of cows. Number five. Cattle make up a huge part of this story, and the moral of the story is based on greed and wanting more than you need. A lot of different cultures revere cattle and cows as a source of economic, religious, and symbolic importance to social status. It is a massive symbol of status for everyone from a king to a commoner. The larger the crawl, the more senior the status. For the daughter of the sword to have her own herd brought to her is obviously a massive power move and indicative of her social status. The idea would have been that after the cows were slaughtered for her ceremony and for the subsequent rituals, her suitors would have had to bring more cows as gifts and replenish the king's depleted herd. This makes the cattle lord's actions even more devastating and puts them in context. In reality, cows were sent to various areas to graze so that no one natural disaster or robbery took out an entire herd. In our story, the king taking out not only his own cattle, but also those of neighboring areas is a real disaster, especially now that there's no way to replenish the herds. That makes this story both a message to the proud children who demand without thought, and also to parents who make promises to the point of their own detriment. We love a good life lesson. As always, if you want to see the show summary, notes, and the five fantastic finds, please check them out on our website, talesfromtheenchantedforest.com. If you want to hear more from us, join us on Twitter at FromEnchanted or Instagram at Tales from the Enchanted Forest. Or if you're old school like Sparrow, you can email us at TalesFromTheEnchantedForest at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your questions, comments, and suggestions. So if, if you have anything to share, please don't hesitate. And remember, travelers, if you enjoyed what you heard here today and what we do here, please give us a review on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcast. It helps the podcast grow and reach new travelers to join us on these adventures. We'll give you a big shout out and our eternal gratitude. And remember, there's always a place for you in the Enchanted Forest. Thank you.